My name is Jeff Galvin. I'm a partner at the Downey Brand Law Firm based in Sacramento, where I do trust and estate litigation. Many elders need in-home care. According to the Alzheimer's Association, about one-third of Americans age 85 and up have dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease. As symptoms progress, the need for care increases. Families turn to paid caregivers to help their elders age in place at home. Today, we're going to talk about the rules and pitfalls that apply to hiring and paying in-home caregivers. This subject matter is a very important one for families, attorneys who advise them, and professional fiduciaries who administer trusts and estates. It's my pleasure to welcome California lawyer Bob King as my guest. Welcome, Bob. Hi there, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So, Bob, your firm is called Legally Nanny. Can you tell us how you got involved in this subject area? Sure. So roughly 20 years ago, my wife and I uh, had our daughter, and uh, I worked for a big law firm with large clients. We were hiring a nanny. And I quickly realized in just a summary review of the law that the law for household employers is entirely different than it is for large corporations, and I didn't know anything about it. So I then had to learn it. So we researched these issues for ourselves to make sure that we were employing and paying the nanny legally. And after I went through that, I said, there's going to be a market for this. And lo and behold, there was. So we created a legally nanny. And uh, we don't find caregivers or nannies for anyone. But if you have someone that you're going to hire, we'll do all the legal and tax paperwork for you to make sure that you're doing it correctly. And then it blossomed. So people started calling and saying, hey, I'm not hiring a nanny. I'm hiring a caregiver for my mom or my dad. Can you help me with that? And the rules, I didn't even think about all of the care at the time, but the rules are the same. So I said, sure, we can do that. And then we had nannies and, and home care agencies and nanny agencies calling and saying, hey, you actually understand what we do. Can you help us with our legal work? And we said, sure. But the irony of Legally Nanny now is that probably 90% of our work is elder care. So people tell us that we should rebrand and call ourselves Legally Granny, right? So it's in the works. We're Considering, we're considering multiple options here. But yes, that's, that's a very long-winded version to a simple question of how do we get started in this? But there it is. I love that. Legally granny. <laughs> you better get that URL reserved while it's still available. I, I'm telling you, right. Yeah. So are the, are the issues then similar in terms of hiring caregivers for kids and seniors, both spectrums of our life process? So the wage and hour issues are identical. The major difference is that elder care or care for the disabled as well often involves 24-hour care that you don't see as much for children. And that brings its own special set of rules and regulations because I was just on the phone with a potential client today who was inquiring about, hey, look, if the caregiver lives with me, do I have to pay for all 24 hours even though they're not working for all 24 hours? And the answer is Yes, if you require them to be there. And she was shocked, I, I, appalled, I say, at that answer. But it's the truth. So you see more of those complex situations, also more of the complicated situations where the caregiver will travel with the senior. There's more driving involved to medical appointments, social issues, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, wage and hour and employment and tax issues, yes, but more complicated in the elder care arena. They're more complicated simply because the shifts are longer for caring for elders because if you have someone who has dementia, for example, they might need 24-hour care, which would not be the nanny situation, right? That's exactly right. Well, great. Let's go on to a scenario. That's where I'd like to begin. Let's talk about a situation where 
let's say that mom is 87 years old and she needs care at home. Let's say she has dementia, perhaps caused by Alzheimer's disease. So her adult children get a referral to a caregiver and they decide to hire the caregiver to help mom while these adult children are at work. The caregiver offers to work for $18 an hour. If you came into the picture at that point in time, what should the children be aware of when hiring that caregiver? The first thing I would tell you is under California law, if a caregiver works for a home care agency, they must be registered with the state of California, and that involves a live scan, fingerprint, background check. It's very comprehensive. If the caregiver is hired privately, they are not required to undergo that live scan background check process. However, they can do so if they'd like to. And many caregivers, even if they're not directly employed by home care agencies, are still registered with the state, which means they basically have the seal of approval that they've gone through the registration and background check process. So the first thing I would do is ask that caregiver if she were registered with the state and verify if she says yes. If she says no, that's not the end of the world. But if she says yes, that means she's legal to work in the United States, her criminal history checked out, if any, you know, all of that, she's, she's good to go. If she says no, that's fine. Then the next thing you would need to do is present her with an I-9 form to verify that she can work legally in the United States. Because if she can't, you can't employ her. Full stop. There's no need to do anything else. That would be my first form presented to her. After that, then the question becomes, do you want to run a background check? I'd advise doing so. You want to know who's going to be in your mother's home alone with your mother all day. So I'd run a background check, and then after you verify that she can work legally and you've run a background check, I would advise calling some references, past employers, all those sorts of things. Once you've done your own due diligence and you say, okay, I want to hire her, then someone needs to be designated as the employer under both federal and state law. You need to obtain federal and California employer ID numbers, and you need to go through the new hire paperwork process. Can I jump in there? So who would typically be the designated employer in that situation? Would it be mom, the elder, or would it be one of the children? How does that work? From a legal standpoint, it's preferable to have the person receiving the care be the employer. And the reason why is you want to qualify that caregiver as a personal attendant. And a personal attendant is someone who is employed by the resident of the household. The personal attendant exemption is very helpful in minimizing overtime and avoiding other requirements such as meal and rest periods, et cetera. So the easiest way to do it is have the person receiving the care, the resident of the household, employ that caregiver. Somebody else obviously can manage it, particularly, of course, if mom has dementia, but mom should be designated, generally speaking, as the employer. Okay. So we found our caregiver. They've checked out. We've gone through those initial checks. And now how do we set this up? so that it is legally compliant. Again, you want to register with the federal government and the state of California and obtain employer identification numbers. You'll need to file a report of a new hire for that employee. There's a number of forms that you need to give to that employee, uh, W-4, DE-4, I-9, labor code notice. There's about a half dozen pamphlets you need to give to that employee and a health insurance notice, all of that. That just satisfies the bare bones legal requirements. 
Once you've done that, I also would tell you, you should absolutely have an employment agreement in place. That employment agreement is going to put down all the terms of employment to make sure there's no misunderstandings on either side. And it would also have important protections like a confidentiality provision to make sure your personal and professional information stays private. So you want all of that in place and then you're up and running. The other thing, of course, is how do you then pay the caregiver? And you can use payroll companies that specialize in household employment or, you know, our service, for example, we provide you with an online payroll calculator and you can do it yourself. But you have to then figure out how you're going to pay that nanny and then how you pay your taxes. So let's talk about what the issues are there with scheduling. There are some wage and hour issues and there also are tax issues. Again, sort of generally speaking here, if we were dealing with this on the front end, what would the family need to understand as to wage and hour issues? As I said before, you definitely want to try and qualify that caregiver as a personal attendant. California Wage Order 15 governs household employment. To be a personal attendant under Wage Order 15, the caregiver has to spend 80% of her time supervising, feeding, and dressing an elderly or disabled person or a child. So this covers both caregivers as well as nannies, okay? And you have to work in a private home. So if they can meet the 80% duties test and they're working in a private home, and the private home issue is serious because sometimes you have seniors who live in facilities or nursing homes or hospitals, you don't have personal attendance in those situations because that's not a private home. So really, really important to understand that. Most caregivers, both nannies and elder caregivers, are personal attendants. They do qualify for the exemption. And in that case, they must be paid overtime after nine hours in a workday and after 40 hours in a work week. However, if the caregiver lives with the family and the family directly employs the caregiver, the weekly overtime goes to 45. So it's nine and 45, nine in a day, 45 in a week. But that's for live-ins. For everybody else, it's nine and 40. And wait, one more thing, Jeff, uh, because I know you want to jump in. One more thing, just to clarify, because I always get asked these questions. That's it. When I say 9 and 40, I mean, that's it. I don't mean any other overtime, no double time, no meal periods, no rest periods. Of course, you can do all this if you want to. What I'm saying is you're not legally required to do it. So people ask this all the time. Oh, what about after 12 hours or when do I have to give the meal period? None of that qualify them as a personal attendant. And by the way, like our employment agreement that I draft for clients has the requisite language to bolster your defense on that. And then you only have to worry about paying them overtime after nine hours in a day and after 40 hours in a week. Now, why is it so important that they qualify under this wage order you mentioned, wage order 15? They're definitely under wage order 15 because that governs everything in a private home. The question is, do they qualify as a personal attendant for that exemption? Okay. And it's imperative that they qualify for it because if they don't, then you must pay overtime after eight hours in a day instead of nine, after 40 hours in a week, and for the first eight hours on a seventh consecutive day of work. You also must pay double time after 12 hours in a day and after eight hours on a seventh consecutive day. And by the way, when I say seventh consecutive day, in both cases, I mean in a work week. So you've got three overtime zones, you have two double time zones, and you must provide a paid 10-minute rest period every four hours or major fraction thereof worked, and an unpaid 30-minute meal period for every five hours worked. That's extraordinarily complicated for those meal and rest periods because how do you relieve somebody? You can have an on-duty meal period agreement to avoid 
potentially the meal period requirement, but you can't avoid the rest period requirements. So it's very challenging. So if you don't qualify for that personal attendant exemption, it's more expensive and it's more complicated and therefore, in general, more onerous. So that's clearly a a trap for families that are trying to follow the rules is if they're unaware of this distinction between personal attendant and non-personal attendant, they might run afoul of the rules. That's exactly right. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You also have to pay these people appropriately. And so I'll just jump into this because I'm an evangelist about this, Jeff. I love talking about this and making sure people do things right. Remember, that caregiver is non-exempt, which means she must be paid hourly. You cannot salary these people. You cannot uh, pay them a day rate or a weekly rate or a monthly rate or anything like that. You must pay them for every hour worked at the applicable minimum wage and overtime when appropriate. I chuckle because invariably I'll get a call and the, and the potential client will start off by telling me how generous they are to the caregiver. And every time they do that, you can't see me on this podcast, but I'm making the sign of the cross because every time they do that, I think to myself, oh boy, they're going to tell me that they put the nanny up in a penthouse in Santa Monica, but they're paying her $100 a week for 24-7 care. You know, it always goes that way. So I'm telling you right now, home care is expensive. Okay, the minimum wage in California currently is $14 an hour for small employers. Those that have 26 or more, it's $15 an hour. But there's at least 20 different jurisdictions in the state that have higher minimum wages. If you're going to employ somebody for 24-7 care, even for one day, it's going to run you north of $400. It's super expensive. But if you do something wrong, like say you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to pay you $250 for 24-hour care. This is your worst case scenario. That's the absolute nightmare that you could do under California law. The reason why is California law says, hey, you know that $250? We're going to only give you credit for the regular hours that that $250 covers. So you take $250 and divide it by nine, you come up with an obscene regular rate and even more obscene overtime rate, and you get no credit for the 15 overtime hours that you will owe in that day at the overtime rate. It's so imperative that you pay these people on an hourly basis with overtime as required by law. So, Bob, we're treating the folks who come into the houses as employees. But what about the concept of, well, we'll treat them as contractors. They want to get paid $18 an hour. We'll pay them $18 an hour. Everybody's okay with this. Why can't families do that? Because under both federal and California law, caregivers are always employees. You may have heard about the ABC test, which makes it incredibly difficult for anyone to be considered an independent contractor here in California, and caregivers are no different. The law presumes that you exercise a level of control over how they do their job, uh, whether it's scheduling or maybe mom has certain nutritional needs or mom goes to bed at a certain hour, gets up at a certain hour, mom goes to a bridge game at this location or whatever, you're going to prescribe these sorts of things. 100% of the time, you have an employee. Those caregivers are always someone's employee, whether they're through an agency if you hire an agency or you if you hire them directly. I get that question all the time because, like you said, well, who cares? If they agree to it, it should be fine. And my response is it's always fine until it isn't. And when isn't it? Usually it's everything is good until, God forbid, the, the person actually passes away because they love the person. My caregiver, she's like family. She'll, she would never sue us. Turns out the, the kids are resentful of all the money that's going to the caregiver. The caregiver feels like she's not appreciated enough. The person dies and 
that's when they sue. I had a, a plaintiff's lawyer tell me that it was a Jewish family. He waited until the end of the Shiva period, and then he filed suit. People get angry, and they want recourse. And when there's the often sympathetic person is no longer in the picture, that's when they go to a lawyer. Yeah, and that can happen, too, if the kids come into the picture and want to fire a caregiver or reduce a wage, right? Wouldn't those situations as well sometimes lead these caregivers to go and find a plaintiff's attorney? Absolutely. I mean, I once had a home care agency owner trying to explain things to a mediator saying, and he said, um, people hate to pay for home care. They hate to it because they see their inheritance just literally going up in smoke, you know, with, with the money that's being spent. I shouldn't say literally, but you know what I mean? Their inheritance going up in smoke based on the money that they are paying and often the substantial sums. And you'll see disputes even with caregivers or with home care agencies where people will say, I paid you $200,000 over a two-year period and that I'm not paying you a nickel more, like when the parent dies or something like that. These situations become very contentious. I'll give you one more example. Oftentimes, there may be one uh, sibling who spends some time caring for mom and that sibling then wants some, uh, a greater share of the inheritance because of his or her time spent caring for mom. Or maybe there's the good-natured sibling that tries to handle this whole situation but doesn't consult with an attorney or an accountant or someone who knows what they're doing, screws it up. Then there's massive legal fees. And the other siblings are like, hey, this comes out of your side of the inheritance because you were the one who screwed this up. I've seen all of this. I've been a lawyer for 24 years. I, I'm now convinced that nothing will surprise me in this arena. So we've all heard about wage and hour cases against big employers. I look at the filing reports. I see those cases all the time. But if we have a household situation where, again, we have mom in her 80s receive care for a number of years, but only one or two or three caregivers, would that case still be attractive to a plaintiff's employment lawyer and why? Why do the economics work there? Absolutely. So there's a three-year statute of limitations on wage claims, which can be extended to four years if they sue in superior court and allege unfair business practices in violation of California Business and Professions Code, Section 17200. So there's basically effectively a four-year look-back period, number one. Number two, plaintiff's lawyers, if they recover anything, get their attorney's fees. So you only have to make even a minor mistake. And if it recurs week after week for four years, it's going to add up. But regardless of that, they're going to get their attorney's fees if they recover anything. And generally, they will recover something. Also, there are penalties in the law. There's a 10% interest penalty. If you fail to pay minimum wage, you've got liquidated damages. You not only have to pay the minimum wage, but then you pay liquidated damages penalties on uh, that are equal to the minimum wages you should have paid. Also, if you have not paid someone appropriately and they're no longer working for you, they can get a penalty of up to 30 days wages as their penalty. So whether it's on an hourly basis or on a contingency basis, these cases easily reach into the six figures. I've had people lose their homes over this. It's crazy. So plaintiff's lawyers, they're focused on this. You will see like Facebook ads like, hey, are you a living caregiver? Are you earning at least X dollars per day? If you're not, call us. And they hunt these cases. I wasn't aware of that kind of social media marketing for these kinds of cases. You've seen well, I'm that. I'm not huh? going to give out this, this websites. I know them, but I'm not going to say <laughs> them on this podcast, but they are there. Yes. So even a single caregiver, if the caregiver has been caring for an elder for a period of time, could have a substantial claim. Without question. So it's particularly uh, live-in caregivers 
and long-term caregivers. But like to use the example I said to you, if you incorrectly pay somebody at like say $500 a week, that only gives you credit for the 40 straight time hours. You might not even make minimum wage at that point and you get no credit for any of the overtime hours. So if you're running 15 overtime hours a day and after 40 or 45 hours a week, everything else is overtime, you're talking 100 hours a week possibly of completely unpaid time at overtime that will absolutely run you six figures, not even a blink of an eye. Now, this seems like a real headache, all of this wage and hour compliance and signing people up and supervising them and then worrying that it's all done properly. What about the alternative of hiring a home care agency as opposed to directly hiring the employees? Is that a better alternative? I'm not here to advocate one way or the other. And I know you didn't mean to do this, Chef, but you put me in a tough spot because I represent both. I represent families and I represent home care agencies. I, I represent literally hundreds, if not thousands, of home care agencies nationwide, but particularly here in California. They're outstanding. There are many advantages to using a home care agency. First of all, they have to be licensed with the state of California, so the state's done their due diligence on them. As we mentioned, all the caregivers have to be registered with the state, so, so they're okay. They'll handle all the wages, the taxes, the legal compliance. When somebody's sick, they'll reschedule and have a substitute caregiver in there. It's a turnkey solution. It's just very expensive. Like It's expensive to directly hire, and we haven't even discussed the margins that come on top of it for the home care agencies, but it's sort of you get what you pay for. And the analogy I tell people is, if you're one of these people, if you're one of these people who likes to do their own taxes, you buy TurboTax, you spend a day or two over a weekend, and you knock it out. Okay, That's the direct hire model. If you're the other type of person who wants to dump the shoebox full of receipts on an accountant's desk and say, you deal with this, fine. They'll do your taxes. It's just more expensive. Neither way is better than the other. It's just different. And if you do hire a home care agency, does that, by and large, remove any employment issues or liability on the part of the family? So technically, anyone who is involved in setting the wages, hours, or working conditions for a household employee is also jointly liable for the wages. So the inference there is correct that if the home care agency does it wrong, in theory, the family also could get sued. And sometimes they do get named in a complaint, but generally speaking, the home care agency bears the brunt of it. And certainly, if I were the family, I would say that you've probably got an indemnity claim against the home care agency anyway. Legally, could they be named? Yes. As a practical matter, it's generally speaking the home care agency. This is a podcast for the trust and estate section of the California Lawyers Association. And I'd like to go back to our scenario and talk about a situation where the family didn't follow the rules. Let's say that they didn't pick up the phone and call a lawyer like Bob King, and instead they went ahead and hired this caregiver at a straight hourly wage, $18 an hour, and years go by and more caregivers are needed and maybe the hourly wages are increased to $20 or $22 an hour, and then mom dies. And now we have a situation where well, the caregiving expense stopped. Let's say that mom died with a million dollars worth of assets. What should the trustee or fiduciary do in that situation in terms of assessing this as a potential liability? It's an excellent question because trustees, fiduciaries, conservators, all can be liable if they screw this up. And we get a lot of referrals from elder law attorneys, trustees, fiduciaries, conservators. I speak to those groups all the time. It's, it's a real issue. It's sort of like you're brought in as a conservator 
and you turn the rock over and it's like, oh, there's been a caregiver living in the back bedroom for three years. And, oh, we just we just Venmo her. That's OK. Right. I guess my answer to your question would be you'd want to analyze how the caregiver was paid, the hours that she worked and, and how she was paid and what she was paid. Maybe that involves having an employment law attorney look at the the records, if there are any, hopefully there are, or analyze the situation, spend a little bit of time. And if that attorney says, hey, you've done everything fine, maybe the caregiver didn't run into the overtime situation at all, and she was a personal attendant, you can certainly pay her 18 bucks an hour and be totally fine with that. In which case, you can go ahead and disperse the, the funds of the estate. But if you think you've got a problem, I would tell you that you ought to hold something in reserve for the statute of limitations period, which is a minimum of three years and most likely four years. So let's think about that. Let's say that all of a sudden the lights have gone on, the parent is deceased, the family's gone out and found a lawyer who's sensitive to these kinds of issues, and it appears that there could be some significant liability either on a wage and hour theory or maybe to the tax authorities for paying straight wages to caregivers over a long period of time. Is there also an option to self-report to the tax authorities and try to work out an agreement with the caregiver as opposed to just waiting it out? That raises an interesting issue because we've been talking about wage and hour liability here. We haven't talked about tax liability. Okay, Tax liability is a whole separate thing, although they usually go together. If you're not paying somebody appropriately, you're also frequently not paying the taxes on them. The taxes are relatively easy to fix. Okay, There's a seven-year statute of limitations, generally speaking, on tax issues. Okay, So if you have not paid that nanny or that caregiver appropriately during that seven-year period, you can always go and amend your federal and state taxes, report them, and report what you should have paid, and pay them. And sure, there'll be penalties and interest. So the taxes you can resolve. I shouldn't say it's simple, but it's doable. On the wage and hour front, a lot of people will get too cute for school and they'll say, okay, not a problem. I know that, you know, I, I, without telling the caregiver, know that we've screwed this up. So we're going to do a settlement agreement. And the settlement agreement is wonderful. We're going to pay her $500. Hell, we'll be generous. We'll pay her $1,000. And then she'll waive any and all claims and we're all good. Under California law, that does not work. You cannot release wage and hour claims unless there is a bona fide dispute at the time of the release. So if the caregiver doesn't know that she's owed money and you know isn't disputing it at the time and you pay her $1,000, you can release other claims like wrongful termination or harassment. Those sorts of things absolutely can be released. But the real wage claims that you're worried about won't be released unless you have a bona fide dispute. And so then you're in a rock and a hard place. You're either going to create a dispute so that you can release it, or you're not going to do anything and keep your fingers crossed that maybe there's not a problem. That's the issue. Well, and aren't these things interrelated? Because even if you do do the self-reporting on the tax side, doesn't that oftentimes involve issuing W-2s to caregivers and then making the caregivers angry that now all of a sudden they apparently haven't reported income that they should have reported? Caregivers will be furious. And the, the, the tax reporting issue is very interesting because caregivers often want to be paid under the books for a variety of reasons. Not under the books, off the books, excuse me. So obviously there's the tax savings. 
and all of these are true. All these examples I'm going to give you are true. Uh, maybe they're getting uh, alimony from a spouse. They're getting child support. They're getting some sort of governmental benefits, housing, food assistance, whatever, any other governmental benefits. They don't want to jeopardize showing any sort of income. And so they become irate at the concept of reporting this income, which, of course, they should report. And, and it's not like we have an option. I can't go to Target and say, hey, I'm feeling a little light today. Let's hold the sales tax. Right? You have to do this, whether they like it or not. Not all of them, but some of them don't want it. And then when you do this, it spurs them to anger because they will also have a tax bill. But I also want to be clear, under the law, employers are required to withhold payroll taxes. That's the employer, the employee's share of Social Security, Medicare, and state disability insurance. If you as an employer don't do that, you are liable for those taxes that you should have withheld, just the payroll taxes. So you basically double your own tax burden by failing to withhold taxes. So what I often say to the employee when they're faced with you know dealing with these tax issues is like, hey, look, we're paying your payroll taxes for the last three years, which we should not have been doing. So you're welcome for that. You're on the hook for your own personal income taxes, which you should have reported anyway. That's not my problem. But many employers in that situation will feel badly. They'll issue a bonus to the employee to cover the tax liability. Of course, the problem is that bonus is also subject to taxes, so you have to gross up the bonus. But still, you can resolve these sorts of things and make the employee happy. So you have seen some situations where instead of just hoping the issue will go away with the passage of time, families have engaged in tax reporting and also engaged in full-blown settlement agreements with the workers to just try to clean up all the issues. Oh, yeah. That happens all the time, especially because you have a fiduciary or conservator, trustee, attorney, accountant who knows that there's a problem and insists they won't sign off on it unless the problem is rectified, which I understand that. Or they don't want a ticking time bomb and they just want to deal with it. So, Bob, we, we've had a great conversation today. I really appreciate your, your wisdom and your expertise and your practicality about this. Thanks so much for joining us. How might our listeners reach you if they want to get in touch? Sure. Well, first, let me extend the compliment back to you, Jeff. I, I appreciate your hospitality and in inviting me here. And, and let me say this to everybody who's listening. Managing a home care situation or a child care situation is challenging, but it's important and dignified work. Helping somebody maintain their independence in their home maintains their life and their ability to communicate and interact with others and their dignity as a whole. So it's difficult, but it's always been my honor to help people, whether it's a home care agency or a family employee. We play a small part in that, and, I, and I'm immensely grateful to be able to do so. Our law firm is Legally Nanny. You can find us at LegallyNanny.com. And my email, which is the firm's email, is info at LegallyNanny.com. And you could reach me, Jeff Galvin, at jgalvin at downybrand.com. Thanks for joining us. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the Trusts and Estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to 
Trust me, 